Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. The enthusiasm with the passage of IRA and and the adders for um, for all of my customers created a, an incredible sense of positivity. It's where the rubber then meets the road is, well, then how do you effectively go acquire those LMI customers and then, you know, and then effectively manage them through time is a key piece. By all accounts, community solar looks like an unstoppable force. One of the hottest clean energy sectors continues to flourish thanks to new markets and rich incentives. But it's also getting tougher. First mover states are saturated, fueling intense competition. And those rich incentives, while well, they're increasingly tied to serving elusive low-income customers, often skeptical of promises that are too good to be true. So what's in store for Community Solar in 2024? I'm John Ingle, Editor-in-Chief of Renewable Energy World and Power Grid International. This week on Factor This, I'm joined by Bruce Stewart, the CEO of Community Solar Subscriber Management Platform, Perch Energy. Stewart maps out new markets on the way this year, breaks down the challenge of acquiring and keeping LMI customers, and shares the latest on the highly anticipated reboot to California's troubled community solar program. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Bruce Stewart, thanks so much for joining the Factor This podcast. It's great to see you. John, great to see you, and thanks so much for uh, having me on. Look forward to it. In fitting New Year fashion, we actually have already had this conversation, and the recording went bust. So we're we're starting over <laughs> and trying to do a reset on 2024 already. New, new again. Yes, Here we go. That's right? right. So you know, now that we are in the new year, I I, I really wanted to bring you on because Perch um, has a has a great perspective on where community solar is heading, and we've only done a couple of episodes out of the. I don't know, 74 or 75 now that have specifically focused on community solar and where it's going. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to do a bit of a reset on where we stand today and where we might be going, of course, um, with the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, low to moderate income adders and all of those things. We've got market expansion all over the place. But still, I think there's this critical issue of finding those customers and making sure we are crafting effective programs that are, you know, actually helping these energy justice initiatives and environmental justice initiatives. So we'll get to all of that. We'll get to some exciting things you're doing with DOE here in a second to help streamline that and also help listeners understand the the different players that are in the mix on the subscriber side, because there are a few of you. So I'm I'm working to understand what differentiates you all from each other. Um, before we do all that, can you give us a brief rundown of your background and, and how you wound up at Perch? I know you've wound through the energy space for a while. Yeah, you bet, John. Thank you. And again, thanks for, one, the, the deep interest in community solar. It's an exciting space right now. And um, and I'm ex- personally excited to be in it and the, and the balance of the Perch team and making a lot of strides. So my background. So um, I've been in the energy space on and off for 14 years. And prior to that, had been um, in sort of 
uh, cable, television, and media, and as well as the internet and online sort of world as it grew and expanded uh, exponentially. And so just to give you a framework, so what attracted me to be in the space we're at today here with Community Solar is the fact that it's an industry, energy itself is an industry in, in transition, right? We call it the energy transition from, if you will, fossil fuels to renewable uh, generation, uh, energy efficiency elements, and you name it. Um, but every industry I've been involved in um, through time has also been a like uh, a like form of transition. So this was when you know early on in cable television, it was a handful of channels to where it became a rich texture of of you know near video on demand, ultimately to video on demand, to where you could actually get you know telephony via your uh, cable, um, you know, your cable provider as well, and gave you a rich set of diverse options for consumers to get entertainment value as well. So that was a real fun part. I then shifted into the online world and, and mobile world where we were continuing to basically move from dial, a dial-up sort of space into a broadband space. And a lot of your, a lot of listeners these days may be like, what? That was an era where we were, we really weren't always connected by Wi-Fi and had remote untethered devices, of course, but that was a fun transition. And then, you know, early uh, and then earlier in the online space where we lived by on our on our on our desktops, if you will, or even our laptops that now became rich sort of mobile devices. And that, you know, spending time at Yahoo, where we really sort of brought people into, you know, a a fully untethered device like our 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 iPhones here, which were was an early partnership we did that I did in, in my time frame that was really fun. And then last now to the energy. So in the last 14 years, it would seem like, boy, those are really dynamic spaces. Energy doesn't seem quite as dynamic. Well, I think you know best as well, given all the coverage you've done across Factor This, how dynamic of a space it is. And community solar is really no different. And so so here at Perch, what we've really set our sights on into is the notion of solar. So consumers themselves are really interested at the end of the day in being able to avail themselves of renewable of renewable power? How can they get renewable power? How can they actually satiate their interest to be part of the energy transition? And frankly, how can they also save on their energy bill? Kind of simple. Whether you're a large business at the end of the day or you're you know, a small consumer or a homeowner or a renter, you'd love to be able to save on your, on your energy bills and, and keep those dollars in your, in your bank account to do whatever you want to do and invest in the things that are important to you, your business and or your family. So that's from a community solar standpoint, one of the things that we've seen as Perch, and it's been around in this space for a while. So Perch, just to sort of anchor um, anchor your listeners at the end of the day, used to be part of a, a um, you know, a developer called Blue Wave. Blue Wave then became a long-term, you know, uh, asset owner, right? An IPP at the end of the day through a merger with Axiom. And now, and we spun out as a part of that. And our job at that point in time was to be the service provider that both acquired customers and then manage those customers over that over a 20, 25, 20, 25 year lifetime, which was the duration of the community solar farm. And so as we've looked, as we've talked to consumers, they're like, geez, I'd really love to be able to, uh, you know, to avail myself of, of solar, but I don't have the rooftop um, or I don't I'm not inclined to uh, invest in that or I can't invest in that. And that matters whether you're a business and or you know, um, a homeowner or simply a tenant. You mean simply it's not your roof to put anything on. And so at the end of the day, you know, there's the big scale uh, utility solar, which takes up a fair amount of space. And there's uh, a lot of our clients today that we serve are in that space. And then they also basically do put it on the rooftop. But there's a, 
there's a whole extra space where community solar fits that allows people to basically subscribe to the clean energy, renewable energy generated by solar uh, solar plants that are generally five megawatts. Take about, you know, let's call it 20, 20 acres or so of space sitting more that connect into the distribution network, not the long haul transmission network of, of the grid that plugs right in there. And then you can subscribe to the, uh, the clean power that's created from there at a discount to the utility rate. And those combinations have gotten people excited. And what gets us excited about letting people know that that's available and they can take advantage of it. So telecom, I know you have some experience on the uh, utility and retail power side as well. So this career and customer obsession and marketing and, and reaching that end use con- consumer. The reason I wanted to have this conversation with you specifically is because so much of what we talk about on this podcast and even within the industry is B2B. So we don't we don't talk about that end use customer that often. We talk about offtake agreements and financing and procurement um, and only a bit when it comes to resi. And that's that's really it. And I think you can give us a really good perspective on what you're seeing out in the field and, and what it costs to acquire these customers, that nitty gritty of how do I get to an LMI household and what does it take to build a platform that has the fortitude to withstand the, you know, the time horizon that that takes too, because it takes so much effort. Um, and while that may not be the core focus of all of our audience, especially on the developer side, they need to know that you know what you're doing because you're the one yeah. doing that hard work for them. So before we get to all that and um, break that down, help us understand, set the stage a bit on where Community Solar stands today. We've had a bunch of um, states come online in the last year. Um, we're, we're getting to, I guess, near full penetration across the country, but still got a little ways to go. So where are we at today and what might we expect in 2024? You bet. You bet. So um, we've got some good growth happening in community solar. Um, Right now we've got about 6.2 gigawatts of community solar installed in the U.S. through the end of of last year, through Q4 of 2023. So those are some big numbers. Um, Strong forecast for growth that could be four, five, six X that depending on whether you're looking at a WoodMAC growth rate or a DOE or NRE growth rate over our next sort of five-year period. And they all have different sort of forecasts. Well, just know that it's got at least a double, triple, or even a quadruple that, that could happen through time here. Um, so where, where, where is it active today, which is really key? Um, and you have longstanding markets like Massachusetts, where we as Perch, formerly Blue Wave, have been in from the, from the onset. And that's really important. So that having, you know, from the... Call it 2017, 2018 timeframe, having already been in the space for a good five plus years makes a lot of difference. Um, so you got Massachusetts, you have New York, which is one of the most thriving markets with some of the, the uh, largest uh, sort of growth of community solar in that market. You've got Maine, you've got uh, Maryland, which was recently adopted. You have New Jersey, which has come on board. You have markets like Illinois, you have Virginia that's also been inactive. You've got Lots of people looking at uh, expansion for Delaware, which is already sort of enabled. Then you start to look at existing markets out out in the West. You have Colorado, which has been an, a, a thriving market, a little slow down here, but still still a growth market. Oregon, which has also had enabled programs. Then you look at Minnesota, which has been a, a, a longstanding market, which we're now excited about. We think we'll get through some enabling legislation. We'll get a different, additional programs, which will create additional incentives to get that growing back uh, again. And then, you know, back up for a second, just remember a couple of, uh, you know, a, a year ago, California and the governor passed, uh, you know, legislation to enable 
community solar in California, right? So Governor Newsom. So that was an that was that's an incredible boost as one of the largest geographies, right? But one of the largest economies and one of the uh, largest population centers um, for community solar to be able to grow. And then you say, okay, so. You've got, let's call it 19 states plus the District of Columbia, which are formal enabled projects. You have a, a total of 40, 40 different states with some form of enabling legislation and or active community solar projects. So you can feel, John, there's a lot of there's a lot of activity happening. So um, what are a couple of the biggies that are on the horizon that haven't quite landed yet? To your point, you've got uh, you've got, a, you know, um, a Michigan an Ohio. Wisconsin, maybe Alaska, maybe even in Montana, have have bills introduced. Some are getting through, some will not get through. But you can see that the conversation is happening at a variety of state-to-state levels. So pair that with why are some of those things happening? Because they're seeing how it works to effectively bring more renewable, clean generation to their states. It brings local jobs, right? Um, It brings... Uh, you know, additional development interest into those markets, and it delivers ultimately for their business, you know, uh, residents and their um, and their residential customers the opportunity for clean energy with savings. So you'll see all of that. All of those pieces are sort of coming together to create that momentum. So why is there confidence by third party sort of folks like Woodmac because they're seeing these dynamics right in the industry through the states. And the one real kicker was IRA, which you know well, which you've covered, you know, with, with a variety of different folks, which has created great incentives for um, community solar projects themselves and for the developers of those community solar projects. So through not not just through the, you know, the tax adder for low medium income customers, but overall. So we seem to pick up a, a few states each year. And you mentioned California, which is always the one. So, um, you know, the the bones of a community solar program were put into place, I think, 2017 or something like that. Few few projects have been built because of the narrowness of those requirements. And it, it just didn't pencil for developers. And I, I spoke with um, the developer asset owner Catalyze in, I think, Q3 of last year. Maybe it was Q4. And they had just finished a couple of megawatts in Southern California Edison territory that I believe was the first to be completed under that 2017 construct. So clearly California's first swipe of community solar did not work. Um, and there's been a big push to get them to revisit how that was to put to put together and how we can make it work um, in the future. And there's some influence and bleed over from the NEM 3.0 process in how do we make sure that storage is involved and, and make this a resource that truly aids the grid. And to your point, legislation moving through um, last year, I, I think is the details are being finalized by CPUC, CEC, um, hopefully early this year. And we can see see a new market really open up there in California, which is a, you know, a global leader in solar for it to be so far behind on community solar. It has always been the, the head scratcher, but hopefully they're getting that right. Um, just before we move on to some more specifics about community solar and really the, the enabling forces that we, we need to get right to make sure that it thrives. What is the impact of California? Because I, the developers that I speak to are all eyeing it on when I can jump in and when I can really go full steam ahead. But is that a market mover in and of itself that, 
the lion's share of the attention will shift from New England and the Northeast that are those mature, well-formed community solar states like Massachusetts and and New York to all eyes are on California. How do, how does that look to you? At you know, a year after the details are formalized. Yeah, you bet. So, um, and there, to your, your point is right. We are all we're all anxiously waiting some additional enablement and guidance on how we can really sort of get after expanding community solar in 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 California. Um, listen, a lot of our a lot of our clients today that are developers and asset owners are very actively looking at for uh, properties and land to be able to continue to develop already. So they're projects. already going with site oh, acquisition right. to say, or at, at least yeah. um, lease yeah. options to. To say when the time is options, exploratory, looking at best locations, proximity to, you know, different portions of the grid. Right. Topography. I mean, you name it. All all of that is, in fact, happening because it's the right way to play. And so people have formed offices, formed offices. People are basically based out and based on the ground in that market looking at it. So it's the right way to plan because these things do take to your, you know, to your point, they they are long in the making at times. And then right? it moves and very so, fast all of a sudden, like Illinois. Then, then I mean, when, when Illinois yeah. came to, to fruition, I, I, that became the, the hottest kid in town really, really quickly. Right, 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 right. As long as you have that supporting state, that le- le- legislation that supports that growth, then yeah. boom, it really does take off. It's a one-two. So you have interest, then you got to get the, the, the supporting legislation. So to your point about um, California, how do I characterize it? It, it's it's a big market. It's impossible to say anything other than it. So, yes, people are excited about it. Yes, there's a lot of anticipation. Do I think the world will move from to, right, from all other markets um, to California? I think there'll be some of that. I really do, right? And I think if, it, you know, if California puts in place the right types of rules, if you have things like utility um, consolidated billing, and uh, we can go through more of the elements that sort of, create the, the right sort of mix for for success, um, you, you will see people sort of choose to, to spend time and effort and money there. Um, you also just have a population size that's amazing. So if you really sort of bookend both sides of the country, right, you sort of say, I've got New York, I've got Illinois here in the center, I've got California. Those are, the, as you, you just look at the Electoral College, you know how populous and, and large those those markets are and what market movers they can be. And so there's no way that it they won't be impactful for decades to come when this when the rules finally get sort of promulgated and and businesses like us and our developer and asset owner partners can get after it. Well, and there is a level of saturation building in community solar, too, even as it's just kind of getting its yeah. foundation. Um, it is harder to play in Massachusetts and New York than it used to be. And and. Maine is challenging. It's very challenging for the developers that are brave enough to be based in and doing projects in Maine. I, I tip my hat to you. Um, New Jersey's doing a rewrite, I believe, of their policy and have put out some some recommendations recently to raise some caps. But it is, it, uh, right. you know, the, the nature of community solar is that it is enabled by legislation and caps are set. And um, the the newer programs that are coming online seem to focus more and more on this topic of energy justice and energy equity to make sure that we're bringing along those households that are often left out. And that's where the low to moderate income piece of it comes in and where third party subscriber management and acquisition firms like yours become even more important is how do we find those people who may not trust this institution to begin with and convince them that this thing is going to save them 10 to 15, maybe 20% on their bill. Um, let's get into that piece a little bit. So 
how big of a factor is the LMI slice when approaching a, a community solar project? I know it's going to vary by market, but what's the significance uh, to to those adders from from the Inflation Reduction Act, in addition to requirements kind of state by state? Well, it's impossible to deny that there, the enthusiasm with the passage of IRA and and the adders for um, for all of my customers created a an incredible sense of positivity. But there is, there, there, it's where the rubber then meets the road is, well, then how do you effectively go acquire those LMI customers and then, you know, and then effectively manage them through time is a key piece. You know, and commitments in, you know, state by state, each state has, to your point, legislation that, that has, um, you know, minimum obligations if you want to qualify for the state-based incentives. And then you can double up with the uh, federal-based incentives. And, you know, if you give that 20% discount, but you then have to make that underlying project pencil at a 20% discount because there's a fair amount of value you need to be able to give back and you need to be able to cost effectively bring those customers on board, keep those customers on board, and then serve them through time. And so the enthusiasm is absolutely there. But, you know, to say that we've written we've written the book on this and that we're, you know, in the middle innings, right, uh, of, of the ball game here is just simply not the case, right? We are at the beginning part of figuring out how, as an industry, the incentives are there, but are all the incentives done in a way that actually allow us to sort of effectively bring those customers on easily to deliver that, 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 that advantage uh, that people want to those who need it most and it could benefit most from energy savings, those low medium income customers? Can we find them? Can we educate them about it? Um, can we create easy paths for them to, to get on board? Those are all, that's all really the proof in the pudding that we're still building out today. We've got <clears throat> plenty of experience in, in, you know, in doing that here at Perch, but that's still, those are chapters we are writing today. We're writing it as a, a, with us along with our peers that are other servicers, but we're also writing it with our asset owners and developers, and frankly, with local community members, local state-based groups, right, and local regulators. So an asset owner, developer, Blue Wave, NextAmp, someone else comes to you and says, um, I got to get 20% of my capacity to LMI households in Illinois or wherever it is. What comes next for you and how does that look for the third party? Are you shouldering all of that risk and investing those resources to to whatever it takes, find those individuals and and how maybe maybe even give us some some details on costs. Like what what does that look like to reach those households? Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engel. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. Yeah, sure, you bet. Usually the, um, so the way it'll work is we'll engage, an asset owner will say, hey, listen, we're looking at projects and they'll they'll be, you know, call it nine months out. They'll have already been, to your point, um, doing the early stage work for like, maybe they're buying a project from a developer, maybe them themselves are self-developing, which we'll see a lot more from asset. Nine months out from commissioning, you're saying. Okay. Yeah, from commissioning, right. Nine months out from the commissioning, from the energizing of Got that it. plan. Thank you, John. And and they'll, they'll say, okay, listen, and we've, they've already defined how they want, they've already begun to pencil and build the model for the type of offtake they'll want and then the benefits that they expect to get from that offtake. And usually it's, 
for the federal ladder, it's got to be 50% or more, right, from for low-medium income customers as as the offtake. And then they'll define some portion of a small commercial, maybe traditional residential, and some portion of it as as anchor. So let's just take a, a, a simple model. It could be 25% anchor, 25% you know, small commercial residential, and a 50% LMI if they want the LMI. But they don't all. Some, some will say, listen, I'm perfectly ca- happy with 40% you know, anchor, and then the 60% small commercial and residential. It just depends on, what, on how they can sort of model it. But to your point, if they say we're interested in this market to avail ourselves of the state benefits from, you know, meeting a minimum commitment for low medium income and we want to apply for the federal ladder, then here's what happens. Then then they'll engage us and we'll say, okay, let's now set up an action plan for how we will identify um, where those low where that project is, whether there are state where there are local state rules that will define it, does it have to be in adjoining counties like a New Jersey is a nuanced market where they'll have in the county, uh, in municipalities even at times, and or in adjoining counties? Other states are, are far more sim- simple and uh, and easier, to be honest with you. This would be a would, would be an easier way to deliver to LMI customers that will say, no, as long as the those low-medium income customers are sitting in the same utility zone, then you can you'll bring them on board. Um, so we'll define what the state rules are to be able to sort of meet that, what the thresholds are. There are requirements where the state threshold could be a 40%, but if the federal is a 50%, you default to the federal percent at 50. Um, so that means you need another 10%. New York could be an example of that. And then you'll go, okay, now um, how do we actually reach those customers at the end of the day? What channels do we have to reach out to those customers? How do we reach? Can we reach them digitally? Sure, we can. Can we reach them through... Um, you know, housing communities and apartment and or affordable housing complex. Sure, we can. Can we reach them by local community groups that already serve those or where they've already built trust and have engagement? Sure, we can. Are there other groups that are already actively servicing low, medium income customers where we can bring another value benefit into them? Yes, we can. Do we look at places where they have already stepped into and have already pre-qualified themselves as low medium incomes, because people don't walk around with a sign and say, I'm a low medium income customer and I will qualify. So we'll look at people that have that have already um, qualified for SNAP benefits for LIHEAP, which are low you know, income heating and energy assistance program um, that have already sort of qualified for those. Those folks all qualify as a low medium income customer through both state and federal guidelines that because that's something we need to certify and, and authenticate that they, in fact, do meet the definition of low medium income customers so they can count for those incentives. So there's there's a channel body of work, there's a regulatory body of work, there's a segmentation and targeting to find those customers, and then then building the inroads into them through digital, through email, through um, through face-to-face conversations, um, and through third-party uh, partners to identify them. What would you say is the difference in expense to find an LMI customer versus a traditional customer, like traditional residential or, a, you know, commercial anchor that, you know, you already have a previous relationship or something like that? Like, how do we yeah. compare these? So um, there's lots of di- lots of different ways. So, um, you know, anchor customers, we can have we have a direct relationship with a variety of anchor customers that are that have uh, a footprint in lots of markets and we can continue to talk to them to expand it. That's one. You can go through energy brokers. Lots of big companies use energy brokers to 
keep them informed about what's going on and to present them with energy efficiency and energy savings options, right? <clears throat> and renewable options. <clears throat> when you come to the low medium income customers, they don't generally have a broker, right? They don't have somebody that's actively thinking and, and reaching out to them. Um, uh, so that be, by its very nature, John, just makes it more expensive. So when you sort of think about, you know, a per megawatt value, mm-hmm. maybe we'll yeah, just that'd go, be look, at, look at it like that. So um, you've got, let's say, you know, 30000 a megawatt might be an acquisition cost for a large commercial GNI, and you could be up to 100000 to 120000 um, for low-medium income. Um, and depending on how easy or difficult it is in the state rules, that could make that cost from 100 to 120 or higher be a difference maker for low-medium income. So if you can only do it in specific counties, that gives you less of a pool to pick from. If, um, you know, you need payment information from a low-medium income customer, that can make it more challenging and more costly because lots of customers might be uncomfortable giving that payment information as a low-medium income customer. Um, if there's all sorts of, uh, and many states have, if you don't have self attest, you know, attestation that you meet those or authentic, uh, authentication that you meet those uh, LMI criteria, that's another hurdle that brings additional cost. You know, if I generally think about it as we've sort of been in this space now and have acquired thousands of customers on the low-medium income customer side in addition to residential, um, it uh, it's 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 quite telling that it's you know I would call it a double at times for what it would cost to bring a residential customer on board. Wow. Okay. So that's in in sharing all those numbers, and I appreciate you for doing so. That's a significant amount of float then that you have to have on each of these projects. As the developer says, okay, go out and get these customers for me. Um, you've done, I think you told me before, 146 or so projects. So right. how do you just, I mean, you can be quick with this, but is that a revolving debt facility for you guys? And and how do you manage all of those ongoing expen- expenses with simultaneous projects and and having to to invest those marketing resources to, to really get to the source? Well, it's a good, it's, it's a great point. And, it, and that's why, you know, when our, when our clients and asset owners do business with us, they want to know that, and they look at anybody, right? They look at us and our competition down there. We're like, are you in a financially, you know, stable and firm position to be able to, to carry your part of the bargain. They're going to, our developer and asset owner partners are making big investments and long time lead investments to your point on, on land leases, right. And options on, on, on land leases and procure and procurement costs, construction costs, you name it, that can have quite a long runway. And then they may have to run themselves through a potentially elongated interconnection process. So they've got plenty of expenses that they're carrying at the end of the day. And so one of the things that we do is we say, okay, let's get ourselves timed up when you've got a project that's going to energize, right, to COD, right? We'll back up from that particular point in time and let's let's understand the offtake that you want because there takes time, different customer to get them, to get those projects filled. You have to be thoughtful like, okay, what's your percentage of investment grade anchors? What's your percentage of small commercial? What's that population look like in the in the utility district that we're selling? Um, how many you want that fifty percent LMI? How many? How, how is this a is this a a set of uh, twenty megawatt projects across you know four or five megawatts twenty megawatt all in sort of uh, portfolio of projects? Okay, X percent of customers is that as LMI? Then we'll go 
we have to have the financial wherewithal to be able to go into market, make that investment. And as we're acquiring customers, we will submit those customers to the client and they will then accept those customers. The utility has to accept them, of course, as being qualified. We have to validate that they meet the low medium income customers, but we will actually make that investment and then submit that to our client customer who will then pay us back. But yes, we are absolutely like others in this ecosystem are making it, uh, are putting in advance, if you will, are making an investment that we then have to wait for that to return. You've got some skin in the game. We definitely do. What's the attrition rate look like with LMI customers and, and how do you manage and, and limit that? Well, we're still we're still seeing it bear out, and I think it it um, it's 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 worse attrition than it than it is for um, residential customers. And you know what we're we're beginning to we're beginning to get a flavor for how how they pay and whether they're capable how they're capable of paying, right? And that's that's the sort of the the light bulb, and maybe not a beautiful light bulb, a time that that has come on for the industry. That's part of the learning curve here, which is. If you've got a population um, that is, a, as a general rule, call it, you know, is banked at about 35% and is capable of doing what we, many residential customers would call an ACH or credit card sort of automatic hit to pay their credit card bill and sort of put that in place and don't have to think about it, right? And every month their utility bill sort of hits that, hits their banking account or or hits their credit card and then that bill is paid and they don't have any delinquency fees and everything works fine. But if you've only got a, a population, low medium income uh, customer base that generally is 35% in that. And so that means the balance of 65% is unbanked or is on it, it, it potentially, if not unbanked, may have tough credit, um, but even banked and, or just simply doesn't have the confidence to be able to, or want to, to allow any third party to sort of dip in there, um, that just gives you a sense of a very, very different profile of customer and their capability and ability to pay. And so you have to then at that particular point in time figure out, okay, so you give them alternatives to how they'll pay. So they'll want to pay, they'll want to say, well, listen, I'd love to be able to pay just every month online. And now, okay, fine. We have all those on, online capabilities, purchase built, all those. I'd rather just, you know, quickly pay you by, you know, by phone. Great. We've got the ability for you to quickly call in with. So you do have a credit card, but you want to be able to, to control who dips into that, into your funds and be able to pay it at, at a time when it makes sense for your in your family sort of monthly budget cycle. And or you want to use third party payer services for cash and otherwise that's sort of coincident with when paychecks are coming in. So you do MoneyGram and third party sort of cash payment sort of centers. We've set all of those things up. That's a far different cost. But what it does mean is that your churn for those particular customers, one, they could be a mover a mover ratio. That's a higher mover ratio between apartments. So that is a difference that you will see. So you can see, you know, if you've got, you know, uh, somewhere in the in the low 8%, you know, 8, eight to 10% for churn in a residential sort of base, Right? There's no reason to leave because the discounts are going to change. You've got a, a set discount for life. It's question is you're going to have natural mover discounts and you're going to have inability to pay discount. So you will start to see those. You can see that those churn numbers catch up into the high teens, uh, depending on how that is. There are ways in which are there solutions to where, you know, if you're part of an apart, apartment complex that pays that bill for you, 
That's a, and it's built into your rent. That's a nice way to sort of change that churn profile. And so the question is, are we, in, are we creating paths for low, medium income customers to be able to, to get an ease of paying that bill? Yes, I know we're giving a discount, but it doesn't mean that you're making it easier for them to bill. Can we make sure that our LMI sort of rule sets allow for folks that are being paid in a master metered or being paid by a third party to still qualify? Those are really important things that we're looking at. When it was, as we look ahead, it seems like the major themes that are emerging from this conversation is we need it. We need to make it easier for customers to link to the project and then stay with the project. So you talked okay. about the stay a little bit back to the acquisition piece. And I know we're bouncing around a little bit here, but I know that um, Purchase done some work with the Department of Energy to help streamline LMI customer acquisition and um there, some tools are getting played around with to, to help streamline that. Can you walk me through first how that re- relationship um, evolved and how you guys got involved in that effort and, and what the, the hope is there? Well, um, one of the things that we think is key as Perch, um, and I, w- I would call it a differentiator for us as a, as a business, is to, to provide uh, policy insights, policy guide, um, and monitoring and advocacy uh, on the state of Community solar legislation, state at a state, uh, on a state by state basis, but also at a federal level. So um, we have a VP of policy, Georgina Ariola, who's who's doing a great job and is keeping us and sits on the low income, um, um, you know, community solar uh, uh, committee for uh, the CCSA. She's also been very active for us um, with the CCSA on the DOE and NRELs, you know, initiative to, to. to bring out the uh, low-income clean energy connector tool, which is uh, which is a great piece, um, and is active in a state-by-state basis on saying what are those rules and policies that can make it easier for people to come on to uh, to community solar projects for low-medium-income customers to come on specifically to come on, and what are the things that are hindering it, and what are the things that could actually be an accelerant to it. So the one cool thing that that's been fun to see. And, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten sort of a, a sneak peek at this new low-income uh, clean energy connector tool, uh, which will be in a beta phase here in, in New Mexico, Illinois, and Washington, D.C. You have opportunities for that to also be in Illinois um, at the end of the day uh, and New York, where we'll be active uh, with that as well. Um, and the whole goal is to get about 5 million uh, customers on by 20, low-medium-income customers by 2025. That's a big number. Right. That's a really big number. Uh, and the goal of bring one billion electric uh, electricity bill savings uh, to folks. So those are really big numbers. And we're sitting here in 2024. So, you know, when you see, hear those kind of numbers over a two year time time frame, um, you're like, OK, how, so how is this going to happen? So the tool itself really creates a, a nice opportunity, um, John, that that folks like us that are that are that are, that are managing customer acquisition, uh, we're looking to say where are folks that are on existing programs like LIHEAP, and so the the you know connector tool really sort of went and has already qualified for folks that are already qualified for LIHEAP by itself, which is you know a check the box that they 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 meet the requ- criteria. Um, it takes away the burden of them having uh, well, every time we talk to a low medium income customer, we have to actually affirm that they are in fact. A low medium income customer have to get you know um, the challenge of getting ultimately their 
tax returns. And I'm not sure a lot of folks, whether you're low, medium income or uh, standard income or regular medium income customer, are that excited about turning over tax returns to get energy savings, right? So the ability that you already qualified for LIHEAP already counts. And then they'll say, hey, listen, we know that you're a LIHEAP member as well. Did you also know that you can actually get uh, advantages uh, through community solar, additional savings benefits through that? Would you like to hear more about it? That's a very simplistic way to talk about how the tool works. But the idea is get a base of customers that are already capable of and qualified and let them know that there's an additional way for them to get energy savings. And then we'll then be able to go communicate and bring proposition, bring an, uh, an offer to them and say, hey, listen, there is a community solar farm in located near you that qualifies for where your zip is. Would you like to take advantage of that? And that's where folks like Perch and other of our competitors will come in and, and speak to those customers and bring that value proposition. But it lends credibility then coming from the institution of a government agency to say, hey, you're qualified. Qualified. Would you like to receive these kinds of offers on saving 10% instead of just a mailer from Perch or Arcadia or Solstice or whoever saying, I can save you 10 to 20% on your, your electric bill? It, it's, it's a far different conversation. Is that, am I reading that right? You're right. It's not, it is, I would call it a, it's definitely a boost. Right. You know, low medium income customers or have already qualified for, have done the work to to get the LIHEAP benefit. And it is, you know, it it is a state and, uh, and actually a federal based benefit. So that trust factor is an important element. And you're, I think that's what you're yeah. scratching at here. Right. Which is how do you, how do people get a sense of, oh, I already know LIHEAP. I already know the advantages of that. And. And it's coming from an entity I trust, and they're recommending these community solar projects. That's a really helpful part of this journey, which is to take this from, I don't even understand what this community solar thing is, to, wait, you're telling me that I can get additional energy savings, and you're, if you will, um, giving me a t- nice tool to be able to access that. It sort of completes that picture of an element of trust and ease, which really we really need to take a lot of the stickiness out of bringing those customers on board to summarize in one sentence, make it easier to prove you're poor. I, I, I mean, yeah, not, yeah, not to be, yeah. not to be crass, exactly, but yeah. it, it, it shouldn't be as hard as we make it for people to take advantage of these benefits. That's what it yep. boils down to not trying yep. to make light of it in any way. Okay. Bruce, as we start to wind down here, design your ideal community solar construct or program, uh, seeing how they've rolled out across the country, some better than others. Um, the mature markets that are now reaching a level of saturation, Massachusetts, New York, have structured them in a way that has you know fostered development and allowed businesses like Blue Wave and Nexamp and others in that region to really thrive and become strong platforms. And that's a, a testament to those programs that are now kind of in their second phase or entering that second phase of now, what do we do in the next generation of community solar but out yeah. west, you know, further out west, if you look at New Mexico, which has been a bit of a clunky start, we talked about California, um, you know, leaving the gates a little too soon and having to to uh, to refresh their program. What what's the best way to design this, in your opinion? Um, you know, maybe picking out a few key points. So, a um, couple of things there there are markets today where um, you know Massachusetts is not at the moment. Um, enabled for utility consolidated billing, right? Just just to give it a start. So if you're a low medium income customer, um, uh, and, and for many customers, but especially for, for low medium income customers from what we've what we've um, 
come to learn. Uh, the fact that the way community solar works in a dual bill market is you will you'll get the credits on your utility bill, and then we as Perch will then go bill you um, at a you know, 10, 15, 20%, or in an LMI case, 20% discount for those credits in a separate bill. So you're now getting two bills. Um, so being able to have the underlying sort of enabling legislation, you know, foster and require, you know, utility consolidated billing so that it's nice and easy for customers. That also gives, that saves because you don't need additional payment information from customers. So that, again, makes it easier for people to step on board because um, they're often worried about handing over payment information, low medium income customers. So, oh, well, you're going to bill me now. I don't want you to bill me now. Those are very natural conversations that people are having in a sign-up process. So if it's utility consolidated billing, that those billing mechanisms are already set up with the utility bill. It's very simple to see that the net the benefit of those credits and the discounts that you receive right on that particular bill. So there's just a simplicity and an ease, right? It doesn't mean that I won't continue as Perch Energy to communicate with and to give them a sense of the savings that they've achieved through time and the other value that they're getting from community solar, the benefit they're making the community solar. All of that will still happen. I'll still be have a robust conversation. It just makes the acquisition and the ultimate sort of payment processes easier for folks. And they'll be stepping right into the to the to that. So there's nothing net new from that standpoint. Um, it would also be um, it's also important that you can think about things like self at markets that have self attestation, like they can individually qualify. Back to your back to your point about having to to prove you know their income status. That's a that's a high burden at the end of the day. There's ways to think about um, the qualification of. Um, uh, master metered affordable housing. We have, you know, we have millions of people living in affordable housing projects throughout the U.S. that are already well qualified. And we're, there are some nuances and rules about do they need to be individ, individually res, residential metered? If they're master metered, are they now considered a commercial meter, but they really are serving residential customers? Why aren't we making it much simpler at the end of the day? And, and certain states are creating paths, Right through the utilities for um, waivers, as long as benefits are indeed going back to those residents. And we can do that, and we've already done that. We've already brought on some master meter projects in markets like New Jersey where we've received waivers that, to get that on. And that's a really great way to bring that bring those customers on MOS as well, right? So those are those are a couple of things um, that, that have me thinking that would be that that are a lot um, yeah a lot a lot easier for the to bring low medium income customers on. Okay, so this is going to be your your um, your last stance for for perch against your competitors and how you 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 know all shake out in this space because there are a number of you know third party subscriber management firms some startups some have been around a little longer like you um, what what distinguishes one from another is is it you know it's a lot of retail marketing, retail sales. And so I think it can get a little, little, uh, mushy when it comes to figuring out who's who and, and why you're different. But, um, you know, we've had yeah. Arcadia CEO, Kieran Batraju on this podcast before in episode 39. And while Arcadia was one to really reach scale with compu- community solar subscriber management, that the, the tone I got from Kieran was that that's something we do, but we are doing a whole lot more too. And, and so they are they are far from a pure play community solar subscriber subscriber management firm at this point. So um, help me understand, you know, how the how the field stacks up. Yeah, you bet. 
So, um, so from a, from Perch, what we've just, what we've made a commitment to is we've got longstanding relationships. Like I said, we as Perch, even inside of Blue Wave, but now standalone, have been in the space for well over five, six years, right? So we've got a lot of history. Um, we've made it. We've made certain that we are financially sound, right, and have uh, an ability to sort of be with our partners for the long duration of these assets. These are not temporary assets, right? They want to know that they have somebody that has stay around power, right? At the end of the day, so we've done a raised a uh, series uh, A, you know, uh, at seven million, and we just did you know thirty million in a in a series B raised round with a with a very strategic partner uh, in Nuveen in their in their impact fund is very very committed to basically bringing um, benefits to low income customers. They have one of the largest affordable housing portfolios, one of the largest sort of apartment uh, portfolios, and a strong strong commitment to bringing you know um, you know clean energy generation to a broader set of the population. So those are those are, those are a real strategic partner that helps us think through and get after this. But on top of that, you just look at, look at who we are at the end of the day com, um, as a business. So we have folks that have, are steeped in community solar. So we know the space. We're committed to it from a policy and a regulatory and advocacy standpoint. We have technologists. This is a we have to build a platform that is scalable, um, that allows us to acquire customers effectively and then serve them cost effectively. So we can keep our costs light, so that our so we can bring a, a valuable cost proposition to our client partners that will scale it. Um, and then we have to have the capability to have been there, done that, and have actually shown that we've proven scale. So, I, you know, I spent time at, at Constellation where we grew this from, you know, 40,000 customers to 2.5 million uh, small commercial and residential customers. You know, uh, I've team members here that were um, – I was at Direct Energy. where I ran the mass markets business for Direct Energy. We had 3.5 million um, residential customers where we provided – not just electricity and natural gas services, but also energy efficiency, uh, home solutions that were all focused on how we can actually bring down and reduce their consumption. We also were bringing in third-party uh, um, solar opportunities to folks for um, for clean energy and or uh, renewable energy credits. So all of those all of those pieces are part of who we are at the end of the day. Um, and you know, so we're building a platform that scales. We have the right team members to do it because you know we all know in in, in life life and in work it, it matters who matters who your what your team looks like. We're, we've got a good financial stability, um, and we're dedicated and committed to basically bringing the return on investment for our asset owners. So that these projects produce you know and yield um, renewable energy onto the grid that produces credits, and we are 100% focused in building the best of breed reporting processes that will show that for each credit that is produced, how we will map that back to a return dollar that will help them continue to make that a thriving project, but then continue to build more and more projects. Let's uh, let's round out here, Bruce, with uh, your thoughts on 2024. What's this going to look like? Is it going to be a big year? Are we going to, you know, um, stagnate a bit on the community solar side or is it, you know, full steam ahead? I'm hopeful uh, 2024 will be um, you know, a step function change year, right? 2023, you did, you know, you can look at some of the uh, of the numbers out there and community solar didn't grow as fast as some of the, let's call it the rooftop or even the utility solar side. We, we could know that. Look at the WoodMAC numbers. We'll tell you that. Um, but there is a ton of investment. So we have, we can see the markets. So just think back to the conversation we, Jan, John, we had about all the states, 
all the expansion of, of, of the markets where the new states will come on. Markets like Minnesota, markets like California, the continued high velocity of growth in Illinois, the continued fast growth in, in New York, um, the continued interest by lots of people, even as challenging it is in Maine, in Maine. So there's lots of investment dollars. Our asset partners have, and have generated a considerable amount of investment dollars to continue to invest in this space. Um, there is work underway to solve some of the interconnection queues, which is really critical, right? The ability to get these projects. We have projects that we have filled that are sitting there ready to go energize that need to get energized. So I have confidence that we'll be able to get many of the states are working quickly through to get that. Those are the important criteria at the end of the day, right? Getting the policy sort of adapted, getting some of the, getting these projects sort of um, moved through the process and, and so that they can get approved and energized and continue to build some for for us to be able to capture the value for LMI customers just to continue to make it easier for customers to stay on, to, to come on board, and then to stay on and pay um, as well. So those criteria. So I'm excited about what we have ahead of, ahead of us. We're ready. Right, we're sitting here. We're doing strategic pilots on the affordable housing side with our partner, Nuveen. Um, we have got a multiple of channels to reach out to customers uh, that we are activating that are driving the cost down for us to bring those customers on across digital, um, a whole bunch of digital acquisition elements in addition to the traditional sort of community-led and face-to-face-led sort of channels. So we're, we're ready. We're ready as that, this market continues to pick up and we're, and we're ready to scale with it. Bruce Stewart, CEO of Perch Energy. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and your candidness uh, getting into some of these details. So thank you. Don, thank you very much. Thanks again to Bruce Stewart for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.